Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamers' official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How have you been? It's almost spring. It is almost spring. I mean, it's still February. It's still very cold here. Are you still it's buried still in snow cold. over in snowy Toronto? Yeah, we got like a, a total dump of like uh, like 15 centimeters, but I, I like to hold on to hope. The sun is shining today. You will make it, Nadia. I promise. Um, here, the sun just came out. The birds are chirping. It's a beautiful, balmy 55 degrees. So <laughs> That's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good time to talk about RPGs. And in this episode, we've got a lot to cover. We're having Jason Schreier on to talk about the latest entry in our Top 25 RPG Countdown, Suikoden 2. And of course, we're always going to do the mailbag. Many ways to connect to us. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcaster you particularly like, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Spotify. You should subscribe to our newsletter, which goes out every Wednesday, um, where Nadia and I take turns putting out a little essay. We round up all of the RPG news. We have the latest episodes. So you're never missing out on what the Blood God stuff, uh, what the Blood God has to say in a particular week. And of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure to uh, leave us a review in your podcatcher of choice because we love hearing from you. We love hearing feedback. And finally, we like to re- read uh, comments and questions from readers. So either if, if you have something you want to contribute, either leave a comment on the show notes or send me a DM or uh, on Twitter at the underscore catbot or some other way. Okay, so before we jump into the main thing, really quickly, a big piece of RPG news, Nadia, Pokemon Gen 8 has been officially announced. It's Pokemon Sword and Shield. We saw very briefly a trailer showing rolling British-style countrysides and three new starters. Nadia, what is your favorite new starter, and why is it the bunny? <laughs> well, um, yes, it is Score Bunny, uh, which is funny because I myself consider, I consider myself more of a water elemental in terms of a person. But when it comes to Pokemon, I always seem to gravitate towards the fire types, and I, I, I guess I just like how cute they are most of the time. And it's uh, this time the, uh, the Score Bunny is the fire type, and I like rabbits a lot. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that we have an English countryside and a rabbit, which to me equals Watership Down, except. Uh, Maybe not quite as bloody, but if they want to make a, you know, Pokemon battles between like, you know, evil bunnies and good bunnies, like Watership Down style, I am, I am totally here for that. Uh, he's We're going to have really hair, the final evolution will be a hair that speaks in a very posh accent. <laughs> Someone was saying that Grookey, the, the grass type, what if he just evolves into a man? <laughs> well, that'd be evolution proven through Pokemon. There you go. But yes, it is Score Bunny. He is all like spunky and stuff. And he's like, I guess he likes soccer, football. Uh, He has a little bandage on his nose too, which I think is just too much. I think I might actually pick the salamander. Sobble? Sobble. A lot of people are really into Sobble because he's, uh, as Mike said, he's millennial anxiety personified. (laughs) I mean, I feel like looking at these, for me, it's less about how cute the initial Pokemon is and much more about what's their final evolution like because that's where i <laughs> yeah. put kind of my most stock in and I, last generation i picked a litten and was ultimately disappointed by the final evolution incineroar Ooh, i love I've, incineroar. i i know I, i've come around to incineroar because of smash brothers mostly mm-hmm. but i think decidueye was ultimately the winner of uh the the, the three final evolutions of that game and I get the, I just get this feeling that Score Bunny is going to be a painfully lame final evolution. <laughs> I hope not. It's, it's really hard to screw up a warrior bunny. I mean, look at like the the Togwall from Fire Emblem or the um, the uh, the rabbit people. I hope it's not another fighting fire type though, because there are like multiple of those. I think Blaziken, Infernape, and uh, Embor are all fighting fire. Types. Yeah, we had a break with uh, Incineroar, who's Dark Fire. But yeah, I also kind of hope that we don't get another fighting fire. But those big feet, man. Yeah, we had a psychic fire and a dark fire. Yeah. But I, I think we can do better. And let's be honest, why do we always start with water, fire, grass? Can't we start with some other type? I feel like if we did that, some some fabric of the universe would start unraveling. 
It's just, it's just I a guess. feeling. You, you don't, you want, you don't want to mess with a formula that just works. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that seems to be the case here. Like they're clearly not messing with what works, which is fine. Pokemon. Uh, looking at the trailer, uh, some of my impressions. It's very, it's a lot prettier than Pokemon Let's Go. Just off the bat, it's clearly a graphical upgrade, which kind of puts to rest one fear, which was that. They were just rolling out the engine for Pokemon Let's Go and then using again for Pokemon Gen 8 with a new region. Uh, it is actually a really lovely looking game. Uh, it's looking, it's clear that they're really going all out on this one. Uh, it's funny the comparisons to Forza Horizon, uh, <laughs> the most recent Forza Horizon, because that also yes, was set in the UK, I sort of. About that. Uh, I like the idea of being able to take the channel over to Kalos, which is set in Europe, the continent. <laughs> that would be amazing. I- I'm hoping for that. It probably won't happen, but uh, that would be really awesome. I was observing in the Axel Blood God newsletter, which you sub- sub- should subscribe to, by the way, that this is a really critical entry mm-hmm. for Pokemon because this is where it is basically transitioning to console. And in transitioning over to console, it's going to have very different expectations. People are going to be judging it from the standpoint of a game like Assassin's Creed Odyssey or The Witcher 3. Fair or unfair because it is going to be I believe, a $60 packaged game, right? Right. So it's going to need to have a lot more solo content. It's going to need to have a full suite of online options. Mm -hmm. It's going to need to nail the presentation. Uh, So far, it's nailing the presentation. It's looking really good. It seems to have a sweep and a scope to it that previous games don't have. I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that we're going to go to another region in the end game. We'll see. But I think, Nadia, my main demand for this game is more good high-level solo content. Please stop trying to pass off battles against level 70 Pokemon as endgame. That's not endgame. <laughs> I have years worth of level 100 Pokemon. That stuff is trivial. Give me an actual challenge. Yeah. Um, as usual, it's the, the pining for a good... Uh, I think I mentioned this in my piece that I wrote about the game, uh, the trailer... Uh, we want that really good solo content for post-game because not all of us want to fight online. And especially since I feel like um, I feel like Nintendo is going to roll out the whatever uh, plan they have for the Switch next in terms of a new iteration. They're going to kind of roll it out to be alongside uh, the new Pokemon, just maybe something more portable the way the DS was, the 3DS was. I guess we'll see. Well, I mean, we'll find out more as time goes on. I wonder how long they can keep introducing Pokemon. I guess they're just going to just keep <laughs> introducing them until we have literally thousands of them. Oh, my God. Because there's no reason to stop. Uh, apparently not. And everybody has their favorite generation. Everybody has their favorite monsters at this point. They're so insanely marketable from a plush toy standpoint. We're, I think we're going to crack a thousand with this generation. Oh, that's, uh, that's an interesting thought. How, do you know where we are right now? I think we're in the uh, last time I checked, we were in the 700 range. Um, so maybe, maybe we might jump into the 850s or the 900s. Yeah, but they, we're almost to a thousand. We're almost to a thousand. We definitely are. Oh, wow, remember 150? Oh my god, how to memorize all of these? Uh, I remember when 386 was too much. Yeah, uh, they really have slowed down introducing new ones, which is fine with me, uh, especially since. Well, I, I think they at this point they should go for quality over quantity. Exactly. Like, just really. Exactly. Really just focus on making a winner. Like, no more love discs is what I'm saying. <laughs> Nobody, well, poor love discs. But love disc is handy. You can steal their scales. So I, I'm I'm genuinely, I know, like, every year I'm on the my own version of the Pokemon cycle in which I'm like, ah, I'm very excited for Pokemon, and then I play it, and then I'm like, I'm out of Pokemon. I'm never playing Pokemon again. Grr, 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 grr. Well, I am very excited about this version, not the least because it's on Switch. Uh, mm. It's just going to naturally be bigger. <laughs> Um, I'm more or less out on competitive play at this point because I don't like the metagame and I just don't have time to sit and breed new monsters and everything. And it's a little too intense for the amount of time that I have. But uh, give me some really high quality solo content like the Battle Frontier and I'm all in. Like I just want to have an excuse to use my old monsters on fun, interesting battle specific challenges. But yeah. All right. So Pokemon uh, Gen 8, Pokemon Sword and Shield, and my axe will be out (laughs) 
Uh, will be out later this year on the Nintendo Switch, and it's certainly going to be one of the most interesting games of the year. Mm-hmm. The, I I have every confidence that Game Freak will nail it. It'll sell an insane amount of copies. It'll be one of the biggest games in the Nintendo Switch. A, oh yeah, another true killer app for the system. Uh, Nadia, did you have any additional thoughts? Uh, as I wrote uh, recently, um, I'm a little bit let down about what seems to be random encounters are back. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised though. I'm not surprised. Uh, Disappointing. Yeah, I think that they wanted to experiment a little bit with Pokemon Let's Go, but they're more or less going back to what hardcore fans are expecting to exactly. see. Yeah, And I think there are plenty of people who are like me and are like, nah, screw random encounters, have them on the field. But there are plenty of more people who are like, no, I like the surprise element of random encounters. Yeah. I think that if they had killed random encounters forever, it would have been very divisive. You got a point there because when I wrote my piece, actually, uh, I was surprised how much pu- how much pushback there was. Uh, people seemed to really like them, and it's like, okay, fine, we'll negotiate. Just don't give me a thousand Zubats every time I step into a freaking cave. I, I think just Pokemon Let's Go was the a proof of concept that it does work and it works extremely well, yes. and it doesn't lose you the excitement of seeing something if anything it enhances it because you suddenly see a rare pokemon bound out of the bushes and you're like i'm gonna get that that's true and uh as long as i can ride my arcanine on like the rolling rolling hills of england uh quote-unquote england i will i will be happy oh god do they gotta bring that back they they're really not gonna do. go back to the old hm system you're gonna be able to ride pokemon i i hope so yeah I really Though, like that. Probably, you won't be riding Arcanine. You'll be riding some whatever they have there that's the equivalent. I hope not. Like, uh, I mean, they had like. It'll be like a Rapidash or something. Uh, Rapidash is okay, but Arcanine's better. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna bafflingly cut a lot of the positive features from Pokemon Let's Go. It's going to be annoying. Like, the ability to ride, like, practically every Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> and those are some great ride on Pokemon. Like, you can read my article I wrote about, like, the ones you can ride on, and a lot of them are hilarious. It's like. I didn't realize how huge Haunter is until I did that. I saw somebody tweeting <laughs> that they had an extremely bad take, which is that, in their opinion, Pokemon has an outdated battle system. Yeah. And that it should go to something more like Final Fantasy Twelve. and I almost had an aneurysm. <laughs> <laughs> that- so what are you even talking about? The mechanics of Pokemon are timeless. The actual combat is perfect. Like, menu-driven role-playing, menu-driven, turn-based, command-driven battle systems are not by themselves uh, archaic. Mm -hmm, They work extremely well because they have really deep and interesting tactical hooks that draw in people like me who aren't actually that much into action games. And there's a reason that there is such a persistent competitive community, why people are so obsessed about the metagame, why there's a Pokemon competitive championship uh, it's not an eSport, but it exists, and it happens every year, and it gives out prizes, and it brings in people all around the world. It does. And that is, the game is extremely deep, and it is fueled by the battle system. So don't ever tell me that they should ditch the battle system, because the battle system is the core of what makes that game work, and if they ever got rid of it, I would be pretty, like, I would be extremely done with Pokemon at that point. Yeah, it's like you and everyone else. I mean, it's it's one of those situations where it's like, well, okay, if you don't like something, that's fine, but... If this, if Pokemon has been so tremendous, so tremendously popular for so many years, it's got to be doing something right, and probably shouldn't mess exactly with what that thing is. That ex- that thing that's doing right is marketing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and as I look at my my Arcanine plushie and my Nine Tails plushie, it's like, yeah. Yep, I, I even I, uh, a lady in her mid thirties, definitely has some Pokemon stuff around because we just never grow up in this business, but. All right, uh, we are running out of time. I mean, we got a lot to cover, so we're going to jump over to the next segment, which, so don't go away. All right, we're back with the Top 25 RPG Countdown, and we are now into the Top 5, getting ever so close to being done with this project, finally. And number five is a classic RPG from Konami, and that is Suikoden 2. And joining us is a special guest, probably the biggest Suikoden 2 boaster in the game's press, and that is Kotaku's Jason Schreier. Welcome back to the show. Hello, thank you guys for having me. You guys said Suikoden 2, and I was like, well, I just gotta drop everything and come on. So, it's it's very easy to get my attention. All you have to do is say Suikoden 2, and I will run, and I will come running. 
Jason loves uh, breaking all of the news in the industry, but really, he's been training his entire career for just this moment. Yeah, well, I mean, if I could break news on Suicode and Six, that's that's really all I ask for in this in this world. Uh, I'll just retire then and there if I could if I could report on Suicode and Six actually happening. But no, it'll never happen because Konami is just a pachinko company now. Did you ever play? Did you ever play the Alliance Alive? Um, I played like an hour of it and was not for me. Uh, that style of of just like I don't know tedious turn based gameplay it was just it was just not my uh, my my vibe I would say. Well, Suikoden Two, of course, is the PlayStation RPG, the sequel to Suikoden, and it was developed by Yoshitaka Murayama's team. And it, it's funny because he was supposedly given a pick between a baseball game, a racing game, and an RPG. He ended up going with the last, thankfully. Uh, apparently he would have rather have done a shoot 'em up He was a shoot 'em up fan. <laughs> uh, some of his inspirations included Fist of the North Star, Captain Tsubasa, that would be the soccer manga, and the Chinese novel Outlaws of the Marsh, a.k.a. Water Margin. And of course, Outlaws of the Marsh was the main comparison to the original game. It's the story of 108 outlaws who gather to form an army and are eventually granted amnesty by government and go on campaigns to resist foreign invaders. Um, in the case of Suikoden 2, uh, you are recruiting the 108 Stars of Destiny, and you're in a much more fantasy-type uh, scenario. So the question that I have for the two of you is, how did you get into Suikoden, and what does it mean to you? Why don't we start with Jason? Yeah, well, so I remember, I don't remember exactly when I picked up Suikoden 1. Um, it must have been my parents buying for me a Toys R Us or something like that. I remember the box art was ridiculous looking. It had all these realistic people on it um, in that in that true 90s style box art fashion. Um, and I remember uh, it was probably one of those games where I was just like killing time between Final Fantasies, like looking for a new RPG to play between Final Fantasies. And I remember it kind of blew me away and I was, I was just... Uh, my my young mind was blown by the possibilities and the gameplay and the story and the the emotions um, and going around collecting people, collecting uh, and recruiting members to join your army. It was all incredible. And I'm not sure when I realized there was a Sweet Code in two. I think it was one of those things where like I had no idea that there was a sequel coming. I just happened to see it at Toys R Us or something like that, and was like, "Mom, can I please have this?" Um, or I, maybe by then I was old enough to buy my own games i don't really remember it was what 99 um and then uh or 98 and uh i got that brought it home and that game just like totally blew me away like if suikoden in one suikoden in was good and great i would say but suikoden 2 was like friggin mind-blowing and just uh just everything about it the packaging and the the story and the, the way that it feels to play and the way that it it just resonated with me was really special and it just stuck with me and I kept playing it over and over again um, just to see all the little quirks and things. I got the strategy guide so I could recruit everybody without uh, without missing anyone because there were some that were easy to miss and yeah, I just fell in love pretty much right away. Yeah, I was always sad because I missed out on Suikoden 2 when it first came out, which is funny because it was right around the time that I was starting to get into JRPGs and I didn't even know that Suikoden existed until I started hearing a lot of hype for Suikoden 3 on the PlayStation 2. And I was like, wow, this sounds like a really cool idea. I would love to get this game Suikoden 2 for the PlayStation, which looks, and oh my God, it's like $300. Okay, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and I was a poor college student. Yeah, I just didn't have the money. Um, my, ver- my equivalent of Suikoden 2 for... Uh, listeners of this podcast will know is Valkyrie Profile, which was another obscure RPG in which you recruit uh, party members from across the world, in this case, the Land of the Dead. And I ended up picking up just in time and was taken by the incredible sprite art and everything. So I always figured that if I had been, if I had gotten into RPGs like six months earlier, I might have picked up Suikoden 2 uh, just in time, but alas, it was not to be. Uh, Nadia, how did you get into Suikoden 2? Uh, it's funny, I actually picked up the game when it was like fresh and brand new, like, you know, a newborn baby. Uh, I had just picked up Final Fantasy VIII, and I was so mad at the game because as Kat knows, and as listeners of the Axe of the Blood God know, I 
kind of get got very irritated at Final Fantasy VIII very Boo. quickly, and <laughs> and I was very mad at this game. And I was telling a friend of mine how mad I was, and she said, "Well, uh, you know, it's a great game. Sweep it in two. Uh, why don't you go ahead and pick that up?" So I said, "Oh, okay, I'll go in and do that." So I went back to the store. I didn't return Final Fantasy VIII. I just kind of had that spark of hope in my heart. I just hang on to it. But uh, I picked up Sweep it in two because I was living at home and had you know money to throw around like an idiot. And uh, I just fell in love with this game, even though I hadn't even so much as heard of Suikoden 1, because I got my PlayStation a little bit late, and I was still kind of into the really well-known RPGs, like Final Fantasy. I wasn't experimenting uh, so much with the the outside of my uh, outside of my comfort zone. But uh, I just took it home, and it was just like blown away practically from moment one. I mean, you're talking about a game where you, you put it in, and within the first... God, like 10 minutes, there's this brigade of children getting slaughtered for political means. I'm like, holy shit, what the hell am I playing? I love this. Uh, it was it was an awakening. Yeah, that was the beauty, beautiful thing about RPGs in the late 90s was it had subject matter and st- kind of more mature stories. I mean, I put mature in air quotes than a lot of what you were getting at that time. I mean, if you look at kind of the array of stuff that you had in other genres you still had a lot of mascot plan- platformers and stuff uh-huh. and we were starting to get horror games in large measure with silent hill and resident evil but they were still extremely new so if you wanted really interesting good storytelling in video game terms then you went to rpgs and i, I think speaking in two was certainly maybe one of the gold standards for that but uh, in 1, of course, came out in 1995, and I think the thing that really stood out about it was that it did not go with 3D graphics. Instead, it went with mm-hmm. 2D graphics, and I think that is a huge part of Suikoden's ultimate appeal and why it has held up so well. Would you agree, Jason? Yeah, for sure. Um, if you go back and you replay, actually, I just was was uh, messing around a little bit with Final Fantasy IX on Switch because that just came out, and it's uh, it, it's it it looks okay, it looks good, yeah. um, but certainly does not compare to the two D games of the time, which mm-hmm. have just aged so much better because that blocky three D that seemed so fresh and new and innovative back in the nineties and the early two thousands today just kind of looks like antiquated it looks like obsolete it looks uh it looks like you're playing a super old game um whereas suikoden 2 could pass for a modern day modern day game because it's such a it's on the 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 very far high end of the spectrum as far as 2d graphics and that it's very detailed and elaborate and the animations are all incredible um and it's all it all just feels uh very handcrafted with a lot of love um whereas polygonal stuff just does not pass the test of time nearly as well um as as we saw with the PlayStation Classic, which seemed to tank right out of the gate, um, which is for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the big ones is that uh, PlayStation 1 games, for the most part, all those 3D games have just not aged as well as uh, 2D-style uh, 2D games. Yeah. Do you think the PlayStation Classic would have succeeded if, for example, it had good word of mouth, decent emulation, and a much better lineup? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's a whole combination of factors. But I, I do think that, that in general, like if you look at the, the NES and SNES classic, uh, those games have aged better just as a, as a general rule than mm-hmm. PS1 games, and especially Super Nintendo games. NES was kind of like the era of like experimenting and not really knowing what video games are and, and what they should be. But, uh, Super Nintendo especially. And I think that the Suikoden and Suikoden 2 and the Lunar games and wild arms and some other uh 2d style games for the ps1 have that same sort of feel as uh the super nintendo games and i remember even at the time i was i was very big on like oh my god these 3d games don't even look nearly as good as suikoden 2 yeah yeah like even though they were pushing the limits of what technology could do at the time i think just artistically and and just they didn't play as well the thing about Suikoden 2's sprites is it's not just that they're 2D, it's that they're extremely high quality yeah. in the really fluid in the way that they animate. I mean, you, you point that out a lot, Nadia. I do. Uh, one thing I've said in the past on Twitter is just the opening movie, uh, which is uh, the music title with it is titled Reminisce, and it's just, uh, this is what I refer to the cutscene just for uh, convenience and sake. 
uh, it's just, I still look back on it and I'm just like, want to cry because it's number one, it's beautiful. Number two, it's just like, we will never see sprites like this again. Uh, of course, you know, uh, indie developers in particular seem to embrace sprites, uh, but a lot of those are more of the, the high definition sort of sprites, which look incredible, don't get me wrong, but uh, just that pixel by pixel love that uh, Konami put into 108 characters, pl- plus a few more, uh, all with their individual attack animations, individual, you know, magic casting animations, uh, expressions, name it. That's just, I, I shudder to think how much work how much how much of their life someone poured into all that yeah no kidding and the sad thing was is that we didn't really appreciate that back in 1999 no, we really I mean, didn't like, yeah secret in 2 came out at the same time as final fantasy 8 and the dreamcast and of course everybody was totally obsessed with polygons and 3d graphics and everything at that time and i would say that it would take a solid oh more than a decade before we really started to appreciate again what 2D sprite work could actually bring to the table. And unfortunately, while it has done more than anything to make Suikoden 2 continue to be relevant and hold up, it also was maybe a bit of its downfall back in the late 90s. (laughs) Could be. Yeah, but the good news is that it still holds up and feels Mm -hmm. incredible today. Like, this game has aged uh, remarkably well, and it is very playable, even if you've never even played a PlayStation 1 game before. It's, like, very much, like, like go go and get it on your Vita or your PS3. I think those are the only places you can get it now, PSP, Vita, and PS3, or just get an emulator or whatever. I won't judge you. Um, (laughs) It's worth worth playing, and it has aged really well. Yeah, buy a PS3 just for this game. It's it's worth it. Uh, so let's talk about the game itself. Uh, Suikoden 2 continued the formula from Suikoden 1. Suikoden 1 was kind of a test run, actually. And Suikoden 2, uh, you might call it a, you might call Suikoden 1 a prologue. Uh, Suikoden 2 was bigger in pretty much every way. It had better graphics, music, more rune slots. It included important updates like the shared item menu, but more importantly, it was just bigger. It it had three major characters. It had uh, Joy, Nanami, and... Uh, you <laughs> the main character and uh it's a story of betrayal and politics and empires and truly evil characters like luca blight and uh, there is a sweep and a scope to this game that befits the fact that it has 108 characters um so uh, jason why don't you talk me through kind of the story a little bit and uh, why it works so well yeah, um, this is, I mean, as you said, it's a story. Uh, I like to describe it as Game of Thrones meets Pokemon <laughs> in that it's uh, it's got the scope and the and the scale of a Game of Thrones with all the political machinations and betrayals and, and backstabbing, as well as the just uh, pure joy and collection of a Pokemon game. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a story that I think is, is without getting too spoilery for people who, who want to play this and are curious about it it's a story that works because it can it it does things that you could only really do in a video game and it has some really special moments that kind of intersect with the way that the game actually plays um that make it just feel really unique and special and just moments like um first meeting luca blight who's the main villain of the game um actually fighting against him your your various encounters against him um and then the relationships between the three main characters Characters are just pretty, pretty hard to beat. They're pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, just incredible. They're just uh, really uh, well-rounded, uh, deep, interesting characters who just have these relationships that um, feel very real and very human and very complicated. And the story does uh, does these characters justice. Well, it begins with a betrayal, and so the main character, you early on befriend Joey and. Uh, it seems like he's going to be the character that's going to be by your side throughout most of the game, along with Nanami. And then Joey totally betrays you in the most terrible way possible. And you're like, well, oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. now he's a villain. But what the heck is going on with this character? And uh, Joey is a complicated character because he does have some redemption at the end. He can have redemption. Mm-hmm. But I've always kind of been of the impression that he really crosses the moral event horizon the moment that he murders Annabelle. Um, what do you think, Jason? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't going to get too spoilery, but <laughs> now that we've crossed the Rubicon, <laughs> the spoiler Rubicon, um, yeah, we crossed I mean, the moral event horizon of spoilers. Yes, I think that one of the really interesting things is just like trying to, the game kind of lets you decide for yourself whether you want to forgive Joey, whether you want to sympathize with his motivations, because he does have interesting and complicated Mm -hmm. motivations for doing the things, the horrible things that he does. And I think that the game explores those in some really interesting ways and asks some questions that I don't think have easy answers. And by the end of it, you can wind up... um, you can wind up reconciling with your former best friend and the three of you can run off together and, and go and, uh, and, and go on an adventure and live happily ever after going back to being friends again, forgetting about everything that happened. But, um, but the game asks you to think about these things a lot and, and kind of makes you reckon with what Joey has done and what you have to do in order to fight him. And you hit some real lows in this game. And that's one of the really interesting things about it is that it, before it can, it can take you to the the climax and the the highs of defeating Luca Blight and and um, figuring out what Joe what Joey's up to and getting back together with him and all the special moments that happen along the way. Um, you really just have some real low points, like discovering that your best friend has just betrayed you and murdered the mayor who you were there helping protect. Um, so yeah, it is. Uh, it is that. I mean, that's what makes it such an interesting story is that it doesn't really frame things in black and white even the main character the main villain luca blight who is like this personification of all things evil um he has some layers to his backstory and if you read up on some of the game's uh subtext and read up on some of the supplementary materials that are floating around the internet um you can see that even luca blight is like driven by this this uh event from his childhood that that made him hate humanity which is yeah he has kind of a a messed up backstory (laughs) it wasn't just the fact that he was uh uh well what had happened if i can just go and say it as far as i know is uh his mother spoil his mother was uh he and his mother were kidnapped by uh was it citizens from your side of the story harmony i believe who um who basically kidnapped and raped her repeatedly and that's how she actually got pregnant with uh lucas half-sister julia um and that made him hate your side of the, you know, the quote unquote good guys. So you can kind of definitely see there's that those layers of, of gray there. Um, of course, he's out of his freaking mind, but he, yeah, he's also a psychopath. He's a complete freaking psychopath. Anyone who has that 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 portrait, like that look in his eyes, is just <laughs> do not cross. <laughs> but um, he, there is definitely not just a matter of. Uh, as much as I love Kefka, he is definitely I am evil because I just you know hate everything. I want everything to just disappear. Luca is not like that. He has his own machinations. He has his own designs. He is just out of his mind, which actually makes him a little more terrifying than Kefka because he is very much the leader of a major nation and uh, he knows how to get shit done and he's crazy. So there's often a discussion about is Luca the best, most evil JRPG villain? And often he is compared directly with Kefka. And I kind of I want you guys to weigh in. Luca or Kefka, who you got? <laughs> well, Luca is is more well, I don't know. Kefka Kefka's more successful at That's his true. evil goals and Kefka certainly has no qualms with just murdering innocent people, but Luca tends to seems to take more joy in just like 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 forcing people to just like uh well slaughtering people indiscriminately like slicing off their heads doing the dirty work as himself as opposed to kafka who seems to like to uh <laughs> use poison and magic and la- giant laser beams <laughs> to uh to serve his goals um so yeah so it's uh it's it's that's a tough one they're both pretty pretty nasty folks yeah he, kafka does have memorable lines like son of a submariner though <laughs> he does but luca has die pig <laughs> Although I think that was changed in recent versions as son of a sandworm. Oh, no. Nadia, what do you think? I, I see where Jason's coming from. And uh, I think I, I think it's a little bit different because Luca, yes, he gets his hands dirty himself. And not just that, but uh, Kefka achieved godhood. Luca com- uh, did like just was a, a major thorn in your side and, and slaughtered millions. But he did it all himself. Like he never ascended. He was just this badass in armor who could just take a million arrows, stand back up again, spit Mm. in your face. You shoot him down again. He's still crawling towards you, like scorning you. He, he would not stay down. And I think, as I said, he might be a little more frightening, especially in this current 
political climate that we're in where he's out of his freaking mind but he is in charge of a major nation and he knows how to run it he's just you know evil he cares nothing for his people he just cares about power acquiring that power and using it to make himself more powerful and make people under him miserable and he probably has some of the single most evil element uh just moments by themselves right i mean Kafka poisons water and he murders a beloved beloved character and he sits on top of his tower nuking the planet just because but I mean Luca takes a woman and forces her to act like the a pig in the middle of her burning village while all of her friends yeah. are dead I mean just in uh, we're talking about like mass acts of horror versus that singular moment of like geez Luca's really <laughs> messed up dude isn't he <laughs> and then he laughs die pig the 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 fight against him is certainly memorable. I would say the fight oh, against him 100%. is better than the fight against Kefka. Oh uh, sure, yeah. Kefka Kefka requires Kefka uses all these his his three goddess minions to before he can even take you on. Well, Luca, you have to battle th- on three subsequent fights, and even then, even after killing him uh, normally in normal combat, it still takes like uh, dozens of arrows and a one on one duel yeah. to really finish him off. So. Uh, he, he, he has Kafka beat in terms yeah, of... Yeah, uh, uh, Luca is one of those villains who you are terrified to meet. And when you do meet him, he he very much uh, justifies that terror because he uh, he is a tough fight. Yeah, I, I think the final battle, which his multiple parts, he never turns into... A, a, he never obtains a new form or get gross wings or whatever. He's just a tough bastard who is extremely difficult to bring down. And... Uh, top five moment in rpg history that entire battle like what do you guys think yeah it's up there um yeah it's it's certainly up there certainly one of the best battles i just like it so much because of the fact that like you when you take down a villain of his caliber you usually get like the sniveling oh you know please don't hurt me it wasn't my fault blah 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 he is to the end he is just unrepentant i i just like love that about him he's a he he owns his total bastardness Uh and the fact that he's um (laughs) <laughs> he's he's quite a schemer like his uh plan with joey and the poisoned blood and uh to slay his father that was uh, in jrpg uh plan terms that was a pretty good plan yeah yeah although it's it seems like most of that was joey's doing uh, that's true it seems like joey yeah joey was the big schemer when again joey and leon silverberg was the strategist that joey yeah joey winds up teaming up with who's actually a character a recruitable character in the first game um interesting connections there are all sorts of connections between the first game and the second game so if you're well if you're thinking about playing this game i hope you turned off this podcast by now since (laughs) but if you're thinking about playing it um and you want the full ride you need to start with the first one because there are just so many connections between the two games and i think that's one of the, the reasons that people love the Suikoden series so much is because they're all so connected that it feels more like one ongoing TV series, sort of like a Game of Thrones, than it does um, just a series of games like a Final Fantasy where every every different, every entry in the series is just a total reset and you can just jump in or out at any point. This is more like, no, this is all set within the same world and there are ongoing plot threads and I think that that sort of like investment and reward is one of the reasons that people love it so much and also one of the reasons that it's so irritating that Konami has abandoned the series mm. because there are so many plot threads that have been just left unresolved. Um, it's sort of like if uh, the writer of Game of Thrones just decided to stop writing uh, new books. Uh, <laughs> who could imagine that happening? Right? That would never happen. <laughs> You're a New York Jets fan, right, Jason? Sure am. It's your team's dang fault that we haven't gotten a new book. He's too busy well, watching the, the Jets and blogging about him. George George R. R. Martin is both a Jets and a Giants fan, which oh, is what? like, yeah, that's unheard of here. Like, that's not, nobody's okay with that. Like, we, <laughs> New Yorkers. <laughs> Yeah, that's just not okay. So nobody really thinks that he, like, nobody's, like, sympathizing with his football allegiances. Like, when he blogs and he has this live journal that he updates with football updates, it's he always talks about the Jets and the Giants and how he's sometimes happy that the Giants won and the Jets didn't. And it's just like, no, come on. That is come weird. on, George. <laughs> that monster. Yeah. Sort of like being a fan of, like, the Starks and the Lannisters. I mean... <laughs> Let's talk about the 108 Stars of Destiny really quickly. Um, Murayama subscribes to the the philosophy that protagonists move the plot forward, but the supporting characters are always the most memorable. And honestly, I'm not going to disagree because it always seems like the ensemble Dark Horse, the Sixth Ranger, is the one who is the most popular. And 
uh, when you look at the 108 stars of Destiny, you just inevitably are going to end up picking some of your favorites because there's a little bit of something for everybody. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, who is your favorite star of Destiny? How about you, Nadia? Uh, let's see. Outside of the uh, of Joey, who I had a major crush on when I first played this game, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I chose the wrong horse, didn't I? Um, I think this is silly, but I think one of my favorites was uh, Gen Gen, the kobold. I love the kobolds in that <laughs> game. Oh my god, they're actual dogs. Like when they their battle cries are just barking. I think that's amazing. Um, I also love what uh, the unicorn. Uh, I can't remember its name. I think it was Siegfried. Uh, yes. Just the fact that you had this unicorn who was vicious. You never see that very much in literature or video games or anywhere. Murder corn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had to like catch this thing by using like a virgin as bait. And I think uh, there's that one character who sleeps around and like, you know, you could like suggest using her and everyone would laugh you off. Yeah, you, you catch his unicorn by like, you know, kind of baiting a trap with an actual virgin. And just when it, when it like catches up to you, it, it's just like, talks like a, a like a freaking monster i'm like holy hell what's wrong with this unicorn i love it <laughs> but I, I love that and i like the dog shiro shiro uh-huh so those yeah, were my there are a lot of good animals i yeah i kind of have a thing for games. like well i used to as people listeners of the podcast know i used to be a groomer so i used to work a lot with animals uh but uh, i've always had an affinity for them for going for the sort of monstrous types nice um yeah the problem with animals in this game is that they take up two yeah so they're never actually worth using <laughs> Um, Except Shiro. Yeah, I have a lot of favorite characters. My favorite character changes all the time. Um, I'm partial to uh, Sasurai, who is uh, has a very small role in two and shows up more in three. Um, I'm, I, I like uh, some of the mage characters like Mazis. I like Pesmerga. Who's this, yes, I like Pesmerga's a lot of the serious cool. characters. Big fan of George Prime. Um, big fan of Hi-Yo, who's the chef, yeah. who's this goofy yes. dude who comes in and gives you an entire Iron Chef-style minigame, which is incredible. Um, this game contains contains magnitudes. Um, so yeah, I'll, I, I, a lot of the characters are just very, very good. Uh, we have to talk about the cooking minigame really quickly. I mean, it's up there with Triple Triad, right, Jason? Um, I don't know about that. I certainly Ooh. love it. And so it has a great story, but the problem is that you don't actually do anything. You're just like, ma- you just stand there and match the A button. Like it's, it's cool, but it's not really as far when it comes to a game, it's just not very good when it comes to personality and story and the, 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 just the fact that it exists, the charm of it all is incredible. But, um, but triple triad is like an actual game where you're making interesting decisions. <laughs> this is not fair point, fair point. But what, what is the appeal of this? Like, talk us through it really quickly. Of the cooking game? Yeah. Well, so uh, it's it's got this flourish where, like, you and you're the sous chef to Hai Yo, who's your chef character. And um, sometimes when you come into his restaurant, it'll be like there'll be an event and you'll have to start a cooking competition where you battle against some chef who is like, there's this whole elaborate story where Hai Yo has this backstory <laughs> involving other chefs and all these different chefs come in to challenge him to one on one Iron Chef style battles. And so you pick a bunch of meals and then you serve them to a host of judges who are picked up. Up. The judges are picked from from the people you've recruited, so it'll be four of your characters as judges, and you have to decide based on what you think they'll like. So, like some of them like sweets, some of them like salty food, um, and so you're making up a meal for them, and then you just mash the X button to make the actual the, to actually cook the meal. Um, and then it's <laughs> the plot is like s- th- insane. It's like the super uh, uh, hokey, like emotional, like full of poison and and drama and like soap opera style backstabbing. And it's like a, a mini little story within the game itself. Now, it has nothing to do with the game. It's all totally optional. Um, but yeah, it's it's just <laughs> just a, another little fun thing that that happens in this game. I mean, one of the the big appeals of Suikoden that we haven't even mentioned is that you always get your own base, yes. your HQ in Suikoden Two. It's a castle and you get to fill it up with people who you recruit and then you can go around and talk to them some of them open shops some of them give you mini games you can do with them um and it's all just really elaborate and intricate and really it's uh just an interesting aside here do any of you remember that uh kind of epic mickey game that was on i don't know if it was 3ds or ds like there's a kind of a some sort of disney style epic mickey game on the ds yeah epic mickey that was on wii no there was another one on 3ds i think Uh, nobody played unfortunately uh because (laughs) <laughs> uh, there was uh, an option where you could have like Disney characters living in this castle, and I had talked to the one of the creators of the game, and he said, "Yeah, that was- oh yeah, Power of Illusion." Yeah, and right. he said that was it, and he was inspired by Suikoden Two, that idea. 
any game in which you have an upgradable HQ headquarters where your characters are running around and hanging out um, is okay by that. me. Yeah, same. Yeah, Sold. Uh, I don't much care for the music of the third iteration of that castle, but because uh, it gets really, for some reason, garish towards the second half. But uh, it's a it's a great little base. I named it a swear word, of course. Of course you did. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> So getting back to the 108 Stars of Destiny really quickly, uh, one of the fun aspects of it is recruiting all of them. And it has a little bit of a gotta-catch-them-all type aspect, but it gets quite complicated, right? I mean, there's at least one that requires you to basically trigger a cutscene in a secluded alleyway, and then you have to recruit them before a specific uh, story event, and then a side quest ensues, and your chances of actually fulfilling one of these requirements before you finish the game are pretty difficult. This is definitely a game that you want to play with a guide in front of you. Yes, yeah, and yeah, you have to do certain things before a certain mm-hmm. point in order to get the best ending. There's some obscure stuff you have to recruit. Um, there's a character uh, named Humphrey, and uh, and who's the guy who's with them? Uh, Futch. Oh, I Futch. Him. You, you have to recruit the two of them. Yeah, and you have to get the two of them at a specific point or else you'll miss them. And, and although you can come back later and get them later, if you don't do them at the right time where you're supposed to, you can't get the best ending, which involves saving Nanami. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is worth reading. I actually wrote a tips post for Kotaku that you can check out if you're curious about the game um, because it has kind of spoiler-free guidelines for like, here are the, the things you must know uh, when it comes to recruiting characters. One of them is early on there's a battle against uh, an army battle and there's a dude named... The army battles in this game, by the way, are these little Fire Emblem style strategy battles um, that are pretty cool. Um, there's a dude named Gilbert and you have to do damage to him in that battle or else he's gone forever. Right, That's the only right. way to recruit him. Is that and uh, Clive, I think the guy from the Gun Guild uh, is very easy to miss. Yes. I missed him the first time as well. Yeah, because that involves the... It checks your timer, how much time you're spending playing the game. Yeah, this was... This harkens back to a period when I think developers just assumed that you were going to play through a game multiple times because there was no DLC, there were no online hooks or anything like that. So they were like, uh, well, let's try and pack in as many Easter eggs and interesting secrets as possible for people who are playing through a second or a third time can actually achieve. So yes. it's your impetus to kind of come back and play again. So it's hard for me to hold against it. I think going down the rabbit holes of finding some of these characters is a really rewarding aspect yeah, of Suikoden 2. Um, especially back in the day, one of my, uh, another reason I came into Suikoden 2 actually is because uh, I actually used to be part of a guest book, not a, not a message board, a guest book that was based on the Suikoden series. <laughs> and we used to just talk about video games in general, but it was like, you know, we had icons based on the Suikoden characters. And I actually still have some very good friends from that we're talking about like the 90s uh who who i'm still friends with today all right we're running out of time so let's talk about something that we often hit on with these more story driven rpgs which is the best moments and we already talked about the big fight with luca which i would say is one of the top five moments in rpgs but uh jason what to you is a best moment in Suikoden 2 <laughs> oh man okay so the best moment is is the thing that's that cemented this game as the best game of all time for me and this is incredibly spoilery so by now by now if you're not <laughs> already yeah, prepared for spoilers uh here's your last warning um so at the beginning of the game uh you and joey the main character uh your main character and joey uh his best friend you uh are kind of fleeing from this camp uh of this soldier group that you were both members of and you've just seen something horrible happen and you're just like we got to get out of here we're gonna run um and as you're running you get to this cliff point and then you both uh inscribe your like you slash your swords on a tree and you're like if we ever get separated we're coming back here and then you both take this leap off a cliff um and you might think that at that point they'll get separated and they have to come back there but that's not what happens what happens is they both wind up washing up at the same place at this mercenary fortress and then the story unfolds and i won't get into everything but um at some point and after a few hours later joey betrays you and then you guys are completely separated you wind up both becoming the leaders of these two armies that are going at each other and and destined to fight one another um and you go through the game 40 50 hours later the entire game is over you've defeated joey's army you've gone to his castle you've uh beaten the the final boss which is this big true rune monster um 
Correct. And then you're left with a decision. Do you want to stay and become the leader of your castle and your army and your kingdom, or do you want to leave? And if you stay, then you get one ending and kind of the bad ending of the game where you become mayor and, and leader of your city, um, if you of your country. If you leave, then you can go and explore the world. And if you explore the world, you might you might remember a little moment from the first thing, one of the first things you saw in the game where you guys both slashed that tree. And you have to kind of come to this decision on your own. Like the game doesn't tell you anything or even hint anything. But if you go and explore the world and you go back to your homeland, your original country where you were fighting those soldiers um, and you go find this tree, you will find Joey standing there. And that is how you get the best ending in the game is by going and remembering that that's where you promised to meet Mm -hmm. up if you were ever separated and and going and uniting there. And um, I won't get into all the nitty gritty details, but I remember first discovering that was one of those moments for me that was like, (laughs) holy shit, like this would not be possible if it weren't a video game because it gave me the control and me the, mm-hmm. the it tasked me with figuring out that I had to go and do that and that to me was just like a really special moment and, and that is always the thing that sticks out to me that ending of the game um, of just like going and reuniting with your friend all these hours later and, and just finding yourself back at the same place cool. where you started yeah I see that as kind of the canonical ending the normal ending is being yes. kind of canonical because uh by the time you get to that there's so much blood and and terror and like really bad things have passed uh have happened that it almost feels weird to give particularly joey a happy ending uh i've always been kind of like joey has to die sorry (laughs) what about you nadia what's a a best moment i think for me the best moment is um there's a, a moment uh, later on in the game where Joey's on your side and uh, you're infiltrating the enemy camp to try to talk to uh, Luca, uh, Luca's sister and um, it all goes wrong and everyone runs and Joey's like, you know, go ahead, I'll hold him back. So that happens and uh, Joey's like, I'll, I'll see you again, don't worry. So you can get decide if you want to wait for Joey outside of uh, the gate of this, you know, this major capital and... Basically, it's just this long, slow, but really, really emotional event where you, Nana, uh, Nani, and um, the little girl that Joey adopts, like, all just kind of wait for him. And you see, you know, the sun is setting, and they're all just kind of quietly talking about, like, all the moments you had with Joey and just, like, you know, keeping the faith that he'll show up again. And the day just drags on. And eventually, he, even though you have the option to go back in at several points, uh, if you stay, you'll eventually see him come, you know, limping back home and everyone just kind of runs up to him and hugs him. And, uh, you know, he says, oh, it's, it's just nice to have friends waiting for you. And the killer about that moment is, uh, Kat, you, you were saying about how the, the developers back then kind of expected you to play through games several times back then, uh, is that happens, that event happens right before Joey betrays you all. So when you play it again and you know what's going to happen literally the next day in the game, it's just a, it's just a real heartbreaker. All right, that's number five on our top 25 RPG list. So we get into a truly remarkable game. Sadly, it was not successful in its own day, and but it ended up having many sequels. Uh, a lot of people tend to kind of poo-poo the later games, but uh, I, Jason, I know you're a proponent of Suikoden 5. Yeah, 5 is great. People should not poo-poo that. People should go play it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, if you want to play Suikoden 2, you can still play it on the... It's still available through the PSP and the PS Vita, or you can play it on the PlayStation 3. You'll have to probably go through a little more trouble to get it. It's unfortunate that it's not as widely available as it should be, but it's better than having to download a ROM. But All right, thanks to Jason for coming on the show to talk about Suikoden 2. Jason, is there anything you want to promote on the show really quickly? Sure, people can find me at Kotaku, and my podcast is Kotaku Split Screen if you want to hear me talk about JRPGs and much more. All right, thanks for coming on the show, and we're going to head on to the mailbag. All right, as usual, we're going to read comments from the, re- the listeners of Acts of the Blood God. And the first one is from Dolrich242. I love hearing Mike in his smooth jazz voice on Acts of the Blood God. It's always refreshing. It's interesting to find out that Mike likes to garden. After that, you mentioned smooth gardening with Mike. I think you need to start a new podcast or stream entitled Smooth Gardening with Mike. The concept of this podcast or stream is just Mike talking about playing games like Stardew Valley, Harvest Moon, and Farm Simulator and others of the like. 
From time to time, you and Nadia can guess, and I know you and her both really enjoy Stardew Valley. <laughs> it sounds like some ASMR stuff. <laughs> it really does, and I think I actually think Mike would be pretty good at that. I don't know he likes gardening. I'm just imagining him going, and now we're going to harvest the parsnips? Okay. <laughs> we're harvesting. 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 Oh, look at this little now lamb. Now it's time to water them. We're going to water the plants. Put and so on fertilizer. and so forth. We're building kegs. Oh, God, there's slimes everywhere. What's going on? <laughs> I'm kind of down with Stardew Valley, by the way. I'm, I'm down finished. with it? Yep. I, I have accomplished pretty much all of my goals. Um, my character is about to have a baby. I'm married. I've fully upgraded my house. Um, at this point, I'm just making money for the sake of it. <laughs> well, at least you, you, got, you, know, you got married. You, you, you know, had your kid. You're good. Yeah, no, I I put a solid eighty hours into this game. Yeah, I really enjoyed good. it. It is a great damn game. And for the, I actually broke down and bought it for the Switch again. Because um, <laughs> yeah, I never, I I, I don't think uh, last time I played it, I really, I meant to marry Shane, I didn't get around to it. So I'm like, okay, this time I'm gonna marry Shane, that drunken jerk. Yeah, I think I've said this in the past, but Stardew Valley, while not strictly an RPG, has so many connections to classic RPGs. It has that 16-bit sprite-based RPG look, especially in the way that the characters act. Uh, The character archetypes themselves feel like they have sprung straight out of a JRPG, particular characters like Abigail. Um, And then, of course, the fact that they have things like the Skull Cavern, which is in never-ending dungeon dive... um, there are plenty of stats to manipulate and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call it an honorary RPG. <laughs> I think that's a good title for it. Uh, did you ever find out about Abigail and her uh, her illegitimate ancestry? Oh, yeah. It was the fact that she's probably the daughter of the wizard or something like that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, who wants to screw the wizard? He's weird. It seems to me that everybody in this game has screwed up uh, family life. They really do, and that's actually an article I wrote on the uh, the site. You can look back on it, uh, dear, readers if you, uh, dear listeners, if you want to. Uh, just about like how Stardew Valley is filled with small town scandals, and uh, it, it's it delivers them really well. It's a really fun game. I think it's written really well. Henry Keith says, "Hey there, I enjoy the fresh takes the God Blood serves up every week, but I never have felt compelled to write in until the touchy touchy matter of Final Fantasy VIII being good came up. Mm. Final Fantasy VIII was the first RPG I played to really seal the idea that story can happily take a backseat to great gameplay mechanics." It wasn't just a junctioning of spells to stats and resistances that one could employ. I particularly enjoyed the ability to compile resources via multiple routes, via compellingly collectible GF abilities, to synthesize weapon components and rare spells and into triple triad cards that had me. This meant that fun card game distractions had real utility in the greater gameplay. I was fascinated. While the story, particularly Squall's sulky bitterness and that amnesiac <laughs> plot twist were disappointing, I found the character design the antagonistic sorceresses to be among the series' strongest, particularly the eight-foot-tall, frighteningly anabolic sorceress Adele. The moment when she is released from her outer space suspension into the chaos of the Lunar Cry is one of the most chilling moments I've witnessed in a Final Fantasy game. Yeah, I totally agree. I love the Lunar Cry. Characters like Selfie, Woohoo, and Laguna were also delightful additions to a largely unremarkable cast of characters that gave the story some fun levity and an element of relatability. Final Fantasy VIII is certainly divisive, but largely misunderstood by those who complain about it. I am of the opinion that you may not like the game, but you should certainly respect it. I am all but certain we will never see a Final Fantasy like it again. Yeah, Nadia, you should respect it. <laughs> I do respect it. Um, One thing I actually really, really like about the game is the fact that... Uh, Laguna and Squall are father and son, but they are total polar opposites. And that is not something you see in literature or video games or anything. Usually you have, like, you know, the son who must take up his father's mantle, his father's sword, and, like, you know, I will avenge you. And it's just, like, when Laguna and Squall meet each other in Dissidia O2 and they have no idea they're related, they're just, like, so on opposite ends of the spectrum that it's hilarious. And the developers know it, and they're just having a really good time with it. Well, they do that in Final Fantasy X as well. I, I know that, I'm pretty sure you haven't played it, but Tidus and Jekt, where yeah. <laughs> Jekt is like the 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 jock who is yes. kind of a jerk. Well, that's just daddy issues the game. I mean, Squall doesn't really have, well, I guess he has daddy issues, cause, but he was, a you know, kind of put up for adoption as a kid. So uh, just character, just design-wise, how different they are. And Laguna is such a happy soul, and Squall is Squall. They never really resolve it either. Like they heavily hint that Squall is uh, the child, and they do ultimately meet. But it's not like they have a dad son. Yeah, yeah. Which I, 
I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about that. Again, it's one of those things that doesn't happen in RPGs. Uh, so I'm glad they kind of went a different route with it. But it's very much like uh, it's left to the um, the player to think to, to to kind of think. Okay, well, how do they work this out? I know they talked. Uh, Laguna mentioned that they they happen to have a long talk when this is all done. And uh, Kiros says something uh, about how he's lucky he doesn't look how Squall's lucky he doesn't look like his father. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just uh, I I like the way Final Fantasy VIII handles certain things, and that's one of the things. All right. Do you want to contribute to the conversation? Drop me a line on Twitter. I'm at the underscore catbot, and my DMs are open. You can also send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, and you can also drop a comment into the show notes on the site. Okay. Axel Bloggot is a US Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, you can find links to that on the site. Um, I also fa- fairly regularly post them on social media so we're going to be back next week per usual we're heading into a fairly busy march especially with gdc and pax east coming up nadia and i are actually going to get together in pax east we got hey. three panels there's not going to be an actual blood god panel but we are going to play dreamcast games which is pretty fun yeah it's going to be pretty funny uh been a long time since i played crazy taxi but i love the hell out of it um and mike is going to be going through the crazy twisted chronology of assassin's creed and uh, here's an RPG-related one. We're going to ask, what went wrong with Fallout 76, and how can it be fixed? And can it be fixed? Uh, mm-hmm. that, is an, that is an interesting question. So all these panels are at PAX East, which is our, uh, it's from ReadPop, our parent company. Go and check out all of the info and details about that on their site. Okay. We'll be back next week. And until then, thanks to everybody for coming on the show. And for Nadia and myself, happy adventuring. Thank you.